0: You're listening to the Tennis.com Podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello friends, this is once again the Tennis.com Podcast uh, with Ed McGrogan and Steve Tigner, a Tuesday uh, at noon, and time to really uh, dig in, dig into February tennis and all all that comes with it, and, uh, and it starts off this month with, uh, you know, following the Australian Open, we got Went into a Fed Cup week. Um, I think somewhat of an interesting one, especially because um, Angelique Kerber, the Aussie Open champ, plays um, immediately. And but you know the bigger takeaway after looking at all the results, Steve, uh, to me was you know maybe a couple of years ago in Davis Cup when when Switzerland you know when they had Federer and Ravrinka sign on, uh, Feder in particular. Uh, you know, that made them, you know, kind of think bigger about the competition. And, and I'm sort of thinking that maybe that's the case with Switzerland now on the women's side when you've got uh, Martina Hingis and Belinda Benchich and, you know, a, a pretty strong team up and down, um, you know, winning and getting a home tie in their semifinals. So I thought that was the most interesting uh, match of the weekend.
1: Yeah, I think it was, you know, first we saw. It was interesting because Angelique Kerber came back to Germany after after winning the Australian Open for the first time. Um, you know, there was a big a big crowd, an enthusiastic crowd, and they seemed like they were they were ready to win that tie. And then, but um, then we saw Belinda Benchik come through with three wins, and Martina Hingis, sort of the secret weapon at the end, win win and come out and win in doubles. Um, you know, I think you know the coach Heinz Gunhardt said afterwards that that um, he wasn't sure how far they could go. I think maybe he wasn't even considering that they could win that tie or or move ahead but but you have to feel like they can now. I think I think one thing this weekend did was kind of get a couple of the young players on track again. Benchik had had a pretty good Australian open, but now we really saw her in a pressure situation playing for her country really come through and also in this in the tie with Spain, Garbine Muguruza obviously had a terrible Australian Open, did the same thing. She won a couple matches. Um, you sort of feel like Fed Cup can do that for a player. can kind of put them in a completely different atmosphere, get them out of themselves, you know, maybe help help turn them around a little bit. And I guess we saw Kerber, you know, Kerber's not going to win every match she plays. She came out and won her first match.
0: Uh, Pretty for, convincingly, won three over uh, Baczynski, yep.
1: Yeah, she looked good there, but then kind of ran out of gas. Um... Against Benchik, you know, so we, I think we see that, we see the sort of continued kind of back and forth rise of, of Benchick and, and really Martina Hingis, you know, we ha- haven't talked much about her, but she's she, this was really a showcase for her as well to come out at 35. She's won, she and her regular partner, Sonia Mirza, have won three straight Grand Slam, She's going to go for, they're going to go for, you know, their own Grand Slam at the French Open this year. Pretty amazing kind of under the radar.
0: Yeah, so, we, so with Martina, are we are we are we kind of underappreciating really all of this at, at you know at her age and and with what she's kind of rededicated to to this portion of her career?
1: I think so. I mean, it does also show, I guess, that that people like Federer and Serena who are 34, 35, same age as she is and still at the top of the singles game, it almost makes you appreciate them a little more Hingis is doing this in doubles. But I guess she hasn't gotten, you know, she just doesn't hasn't gotten the attention. And I, I think it's pretty unexpected. She she's retired twice, um, is already in the tennis Hall of Fame. As didn't show that much. Doesn't show that much in singles, but still has, you know, still has the skills, the instincts, a sort of old-fashioned game that's good for doubles. And she's partnered with a more powerful player in Mirza, who was a good singles player. So you know, they they make a good combination. I think it just shows that. That Hingis is just natural ability. Just, you know, it it really never goes away. Never goes out of style. She can still use it. Still do things that kind of younger players can't do. And Benchik said that that Hingis did all the double stuff, quote unquote, the double stuff, and did all the volley and all the sort of stuff that a lot of younger players like her don't don't really learn anymore. So in that sense, it's it's great to watch Hingis.
0: Yeah, and um, you know, I think also perhaps part of it is that you know she has been away from the game for. S- for a couple extended periods, that you know, truthfully she doesn't have the mileage uh, that many other players are going to you know, going to have. Doubles is a different, you know, an easier format anyway on the body, and you know it's easy for me to to kind of see her really playing perhaps into her forties if she wants to. It seems like she does have, you know, especially com- compared to her earlier career when you know she was and deservedly so. You know, looked at as this you know, as the world's great player. Um, you know, sort of a prodigious upbringing, and you know, just the, the the glare of the spotlight was just so harsh at times. None more so than against Groff at Roland Garros. Uh, but it seems like she does have sort of a renewed appreciation for the game. I remember, I mean, at recently she was, I think before she got back into in the doubles, she was doing TV work for the game. It just seemed like she was. Kind of embracing this this lifestyle a little bit more, um, and you know, with her, this could be a, a particularly um, fruitful year. Not just in Fed Cup because it's the you know it's the Olympics, and you know she'll be catapulted into you know an even greater spotlight depending on what she wants to do with next. I think the word what, you know, she is playing with Federer you know she'll probably play with um you know make sense to play with Bencic too and that so this you know this could be kind of a almost in a in a way like a career year of sorts for her
1: yeah and i think you're right that she could play for a long time if you look at the men the male doubles players daniel Nestor, he was he was just in the australian open final he's over 40 ingus could play as long as she wants you know as long as you know if she still needs to play if she still feels feels um you know that desire i think she you know she retired from singles originally at 22 i think there's a sense still a sense of of an unfinished career she was kind of driven out of the game or much earlier than than she she would have liked both injuries and just the way the game changed to a more powerful singles game but maybe this is a chance for her to kind of feel like i've 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 done everything i could
0: right yeah Looking back at a Germany Swiss tie, Kerber. Kerber ended up playing the second and third rubber. So she actually played two matches back to back days, not even a match in between there. So there's that element of it too. And, you know, doubles gets the last, they get the fifth rubber. You, you don't even often see doubles in Fed Cup ties, but it, you know, it came down to it here. Um, Swiss play the Czechs next at home. Czech Republic beat Romania the other semi will be the, will be france against the netherlands um italy and russia losing the first round and the us uh will will go from one uh tropical climate uh you know in hawaii they'll they'll go to actually australia to to play their way back into the world group for the uh 2017 competition. Oddly enough, that's where the uh, US Davis Cup team will be playing too. They'll be playing in Australia, so both of the uh, American teams end up going down there. Um, another topic I, I kind of wanted to, to touch on is uh, before we get into this week's events, is something that I was just thinking about. You know, I was doing a radio spot during the Australian Open at the at the peak of the match fixing talk, with the with the report and um, various commentary uh, press conferences held by the tennis establishment, and you know, even the second week of the Australian Open, I was thinking, you know, the story broke on day one, and I was, I got thinking that it seemed like it had already kind of fizzled out in a way, and then, I don't know if that was a result of the, just the nature of the tournament itself and the actual tennis, but. You know, we're just about a we're really only a week removed from the tournament, from the Australian Open, and I I wonder if really has this story already sort of fizzled into the background, and and maybe more to the point, you know, is there anything that is there any sort of really any sort of standard that we can hold, or that you know tennis itself can hold its its organizations to its integrity unit, to to make sure that. What was such a hot button issue was actually being looked at.
1: Well, I think we saw during the tournament a sort of evolution uh, among the authorities, especially the the sort of guy who be, the guy who became the spokesman for it, Chris Kermode, the the ATP chief. He started out saying, you know, we're fine, everything's fine, don't worry about it. But by the end, he he had uh, you know sort of conceded that there needed to be an investigation or a, a sort of a look, overall look at what. But what the sport was doing with the with its um, anti-corruption unit called the Tennis Integrity Unit, um, and also whether I think even more important, how transparent the sport needed to be about about what it was doing. So I think there there was progress there. Since then, we found out that the person leading that in that investigation has been involved in tennis too. So he may or may not be completely independent. We'll see about that. Um, I think there, but I do think there was progress there. We also just found out today, you know, another reminder of it that uh, the Guardian had a had a piece about how there have been two low-level chair umpires were banned from the sport for being involved in in illegal gambling, um, helping out gamblers online, Uh, and that wasn't revealed by. By the so, so,
0: did you see some of the specifics of that? What the was it just kind of feeding them information, um, you know, quicker than than normal, or how? Yeah, they
1: would they would text the score. In some cases, text the score to a, a gambler, to a uh, people doing online betting before they registered the score, so that you could do, you could bet on something that that hadn't publicly been. Um, people didn't know about what was going to happen it was, you know, it was inside information basically. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think more, I think, I think tennis's problem is this idea that it needs to pre- present itself as, as being pure, as being, you know, untainted by any of these problems that, that, um, come up in other sports. I think anybody, you, there's a case where it, it, we try to hide too much, um, you know tennis tries to tries to hide too much and and I think anyone would would admit or or understand that there's corruption at tennis tournaments or even at low level tennis, tennis tournaments there's going to be people involved with that kind of thing in, in any sport but I feel like tennis is is too worried about its image in in, in upholding a, a pure image publicly that it doesn't reveal enough of these things you know you, you can't reveal everything you know the match fixing scandal in Australia he couldn't just put out names of suspicious players that you can't legally do that, but I think there's a balance that tennis tennis could get better in what it does reveal
0: yeah i i mean i think I think w- what you said about having someone who's worked within tennis um and someone who's led the investigation this is a this to me has always been sort of i think something that has maybe held the sport back in in some ways is that it it always i think has been very hesitant to embrace widespread change and i think you know if you if you look back at recent ceos um when you talk about like Etienne de Villiers came in Larry Scott these were these are leaders who did not have significant tennis backgrounds, and I think largely, when their time with the sport was over, um, you know, we're kind of we're kind of really passed on in in preference of someone who is kind of more of a blue blood in, in the game, and I think there's sort of a comfort in that with people who are you know within the industry. You, you look at it in terms of uh, you know. Many people have been calling for Fed Cup, Davis Cup to change, and I think it's it's more of a tradition based. That's one of the huge arguments with it. You see it with, um, you know, look at all the. This has been you know talked about many times, but you know all the conflicts and perhaps that come with you know the announcers that we hear about in the game. I, I think maybe you know a point that that we're kind of talking about in this whole thing is that it's 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 really. It's really a big challenge for tennis to kind of to kind of move away from from what it knows and and what it's done for so long. And I think I think all sports you know do that in their own particular way, but I think some sports uh, maybe do it you know handle it better than others. I, I've I've often said online, I often tweet this when I see something that I just shake my head about. at The game is that tennis can't get out of its own way, and I feel like it does that in a couple of instances. And maybe this is another example of that.
1: Yeah, I think it's almost a it's a niche sport, small a small sport that that doesn't understand or is only beginning to understand that it's also an international sport that's that yes, it used to be this it used to be all amateur, it used to be have a reputation for being pure, but now it's played all over the world. It's you know it needs a different level of policing, a different level of of sort of you know attention or even just an admission that that um that it's an international sport that 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 has that there are bad elements involved in in tennis and and it needs to police itself you know it just doesn't it hasn't given enough attention or money to policing itself
0: yeah and the lower level stuff to me is interesting with this cuz that's you know that has been a word that has been handcuffed to every uh discussion of the game is that you know I, I many people concede that you know in lower level almost like as if it's okay um in that you know it goes on in this realm of the game but you know and in this you know in the sport that in the in the section of the game that really defines tennis professionally you know we don't see that there that's that's what i think a lot of the talk has been since this all came out and actually you know i've noticed over the past couple of years that these lower-level tournaments, these challengers in particular, uh, they've been given a higher profile in terms of, um, especially online coverage. The ATP has uh, given; they've actually, you know, they've. I think they've sort of rebranded the Challenger Tour altogether. They um, have devoted a big part of their website to it. There's, you can pretty much find um, those tournaments streaming uh, without too much difficulty, and. And that's a, you know a fine a balance that we're when we're talking about match fixing, um, obviously that stuff can can play into the hands of potentially you know the the wrong individuals here. But you know overall it's giving the game still a more of a profile and more of a platform. So I, I just I think that's worth watching over the next couple of years is is how tennis especially handles this on that lower level because I think you do need to. Uh, that if that is indeed the root of the problem, then that's where a lot of the focus needs to go to. So I, I'm curious to see what the steps are taken, you know, in that direction. Yeah,
1: I think the tennis integrity unit had had focused, you know, as far as it could up until now on on making sure it didn't go, didn't that kind of stuff was was rooted out at a at a higher level at a more at an ATP level. Um, but you have to, you know. These stories, the more they come out, people don 't necessarily who people who just hear these stories don 't necessarily differentiate between low level or ATP or grand slam events It's just tennis, and you know tennis will suffer tennis's reputation for will suffer whatever level you know event these these things happen at
0: yeah absolutely um, let 's quickly move on to this week uh, I, I do want to get to just kind of an overview of where where things are in the calendar. Uh, a full week away from the Australian Open um, tournaments kind of all over the globe uh, this is you know typical of February uh, in particular of interest you have Rafa playing in um, in South America as he 's done over the past few years um, to varying degrees of success there 's uh, you know examples of uh, you know Last year, he had Fanini beating him. He had Zabios a couple of years back. Rafa's had some good results there as well. He comes back, and um, so maybe we'll just start with there with Rafa. I mean, I think clearly what he does after a first round loss in Australia has got to be, you know, the week's big story. You no, know, no matter what happens. Yeah,
1: you know, he's back on clay. He. Um, this is where he typically either does well a few years ago he started a long run of success down in in South America he hasn't been able to repeat that but he's had he's had good events there I think in a way it's almost it's almost in a way he can't he can win in Buenos Aires but there's more of a downside if he starts to lose at at events like this clay events smaller clay events uh, regularly then you you really start to feel like Where's his confidence going to go from there? What are other you know, what are other players gonna to, gonna to, you know, they're gonna become more confident. This isn't an easy tournament neither. Ferrer is there, Songa is there, Fognini is there as well, you know, there are, there are Verdasco's there, there are matches that um
0: John Isner's there.
1: John Isner's there. He's you know, he there are matches that Rafa could lose, uh so you almost feel like he's gotta win this event or he's gotta do well. Uh at least for, you know, for the immediate future, for for, for how he feels starting out this season.
0: Yep. Yeah, so you know we got that for uh, to look at this week, and as I said, um, as we pointed out before this chat right here, John Isner eschewing the um, the friendly confines at home of Memphis, uh, where I. Pretty much the entire tournament, otherwise, it is American based. It's interesting not in the fact that, um, as you pointed out, that Donald Young is a three seed and Ryan Harrison gets a main draw, um, makes the cut alone on it, but this one is more interesting uh, for the fact that we'll be seeing many of the um, very highly touted young Americans, teenagers that were just. You know, just coming off the junior Grand Slams last year, um, Taylor Fritz, Michael Moe. If you've been to the Open, you've probably seen quite a bit of them playing in various events, and they're on. Um, I saw them actually quite a bit on courts four, five, six when they, you know, when the Open is redone. That section of Flushing Meadows. A lot of their matches were held on those courts. You get to see them up close, and uh, they'll be playing at a, you know, an ATP level event this time.
1: Yeah, I think if you want to see American players right now, this is you know this is your tournament. Thirteen guys were in out of twenty-eight. Um, we've already seen Ryan Harrison he got a direct entry into a tournament that's that's fairly rare. He he has a win already over Francis TFO, another American. You'll see uh, later tonight Taylor Fritz against Michael Moe. Two young, two teenagers. Another young player, Tommy Paul, um, Donald Young. The second seed is Steve Johnson, uh, an older player who who's had, you know, had a really good year last year. So you know, this, is, this is a chance for a showcase for, for U.S. tennis. Um, guys you might not, you know, unfortunately, might not see at the Grand Slams or at a lot of bigger events these days. So in that sense, it will be an interesting week for U.S. fans to sort of get an idea of where these guys are right now.
0: Yeah, it's, like I said, kind of a mixed bag across across the uh, ATP and WTA. Really, there's sort of notable um, players of interest in almost any event. Um, This week, you can read Steve's full preview rundown of them on tennis.com, and I uh, suggest you do that as well as with a nice look at uh, Martine Hingis as well, really what has uh, turned into really another career, uh, as we were alluding to earlier. So, Uh, With that said, uh, we will part ways and reconvene next Tuesday, as always, here on the Tennis.com podcast. This is Ed McGrogan for Steve Tigner. Thank you for listening.
1: You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to
0: Tennis.com.